I just want to get it on the record. We want to try to remove those obstacles that may be getting in the Where are our black politicians who are supposed to be protected? The Justice Department's statement that it's prepared to step in with an independent investigation. Hopefully the federal government will come up with a plan. When they go low, we go high. Welcome to Real Talk, the show that's open for discussion on issues that matter to you. Here you'll find informed conversation, topics, and personalities. We'll discuss what's in the news and find out what's on the minds of some of the most thought-provoking people who make our community great and interesting. And now, the host of Real Talk, Charles Griggs. Tia Mitchell is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Washington correspondent. In this role, she writes about Georgia's congressional delegation, campaigns, elections, and the impact the decisions made in D.C., have on residents of the Peach State. Prior to joining the AJC, Tia spent her career in Florida covering local, state, and government through publications like the Tallahassee Democrat and the Florida Times Union. Tia is a proud Rattler and a graduate of the Florida A&M University and currently serves as chair of the political task force for the National Association of Black Journalists. Tia is here today to offer information on the 2020 elections, Georgia's impact on the outcome of those elections, and of course, she'll give us her eyewitness account of the domestic terror attack on the U.S. Capitol that was led by Trump supporters on January 6th. Coming up, a conversation with Tia Mitchell on Real Talk. Okay, so welcome to another edition of Real Talk. I'm Charles Griggs, and my very, very special guest today is the one and only, the wonderful, the talented Miss Tia Mitchell. Tia Mitchell is a Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So good morning, good afternoon, good day. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, wonderful. Can, can you, like, because I know the AJC is one of the few papers that actually has, one of the few daily papers that actually has a Washington correspondent. Can you talk a little bit about that as we, you know, kind of get ready to start our conversation? And you would actually be surprised there are more papers um, that have Washington correspondents than even I thought until I got here. We have mm-hmm. an association called the Regional Reporters Association for what we describe as regional papers. Those are like your normal daily papers, but not like national papers like the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I mean, I have, um, there's a colleague who writes for the Detroit News. There's colleagues who write for the LA Times. There's colleagues who write for the San Francisco Chronicle. And, you know, a lot of the papers representing some of your larger cities do still have um, regional reporters um, stationed in Washington. Of course, the number continues to decrease and there aren't as many as there once were, but there is a still, um, there's a there's a number of us that do the job that I do. Mm-hmm. So you're primarily covering Congress or, and the presidential administration. Uh, is one way, there's way, one may, way heavier than the other. Does one have more weight? You can spend most of your time doing one more than the other? I spend a lot more of my time covering Congress. My job title is to cover Georgia's delegation which of course is Congress, but I also, if there were to be Georgians that had been appointed to top levels of um, President Biden's cabinet, like for Trump, 
We paid a little bit more attention to Sonny Perdue because he was the former governor of Georgia. So I also say that in, in addition to covering Georgia's delegation, I cover Washington from a Georgia perspective. So I am covering um, Joe Biden's, not only his inauguration, but his transition in his administration, but not for a general audience. I will cover things specifically that I think are important to Georgians or things that happen specifically how they will affect people who live in Georgia. So, you know, we're looking at coronavirus relief and things like that. Um, so whatever I'm doing, I'm keeping a Georgia audience in mind. Yeah, so that's why it's important for the AJC to make sure you, they have that representation there in DC. It's because those issues, they don't want those issues reported secondhand, like through um, AP or routers or someone like that. So they'd rather have it second. They'd rather have it firsthand from a report on the ground, and that's that's where you come in. Yeah, and I, you know, it's a lot of work, um, a lot of people, and we've got some some colorful characters in the Georgia delegation that keep me busy. Um, and we've got two new U.S. senators who flip the balance of power at the U.S. Senate that are going to keep me busy as well. Yeah, so you mentioned that. So let's talk a little bit about um, the elections, the 2020 elections, and and kind of morph our way into the runoff. But the 2020 elections obviously was, you know, one of the pivotal points for Georgia politics because we saw the state actually turn blue. Uh, a lot of the credit has been given to the work of uh, Stacey Abrams, who ran unsuccessfully for governor previously. Um, what impact do you think that she really had on the presidential outcome of, for, of the election? Uh, you know, what is the type of work that she was doing on the ground or in general that moved people to vote uh, against President Trump, but also to kind of put uh, Warnock and Ossoff in position to, um, to, go, to go to a runoff? Yeah, so um, in Georgia, um, up until you know, this year's election, all of the statewide officers um, were Republicans and a Democrat had not won statewide in probably over 10 years and a Democratic presidential candidate had not won in Georgia since Bill Clinton in 1992. And Clinton didn't even carry Georgia when he won his second term in 1996. So, you know, Georgia had become a red state and where Stacey Abrams gets credit is she eventually became the Democratic leader in the Georgia legislature, which is called the General Assembly. And um, when she became Democratic leader, you know, your job is not just that legislative session. Your job is also to help elect more Democrats and to expand the Democratic, uh, the number of Democrats in the General Assembly. And she came up with this playbook based on data and the changing demographics of Georgia. And she um, shared this kind of line of thinking, not just with Democrats in Georgia, but Democrats nationwide who had money that she wanted them to spend in Georgia. And she said, and this is 10 years ago when she was saying, if you look at how the demographics are changing, there are opportunities in Georgia for Democrats to win statewide, but here's how you do it. You know, you can't, you gotta beat Republicans at their own game. And 
She had suggestions of where she felt Democrats weren't going hard enough and weren't um, competing on the same level as Republicans. And so what she really did very systemically is put that playbook into order. And we saw that when she ran for governor in 2018, she was not successful, but she came really, really close. And that put her on the map because it showed that she came so close that you couldn't count Democrats out anymore because it just is like the next time, you know, someone can can replicate her playbook and possibly get over the hump. And that's the energy that Democrats took into the 2020 presidential race. Um, And so she, as high profile as she is, you know, you see her doing interviews and being on the cover of magazines. And she also does a lot of organizing behind the scenes. So one of the things she did after she lost her governor's race is she started two new organizations, one Fair Count focused on the census and then Fair Fight focused on leveling the playing field as far as election um, access and voter rights. And Fair Fight was instrumental in things like making sure that absentee ballots, um, if your signature didn't match in Georgia, that you had time to rectify that before they just said your vote doesn't count. And that change is something that Republicans now are very critical of, but that's something that Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight and other voting groups negotiated with Republicans because they had filed lawsuits after the 2018 election that were getting traction. So that's the difference. A lot of, you'll hear Republicans say, well, when Donald Trump tried to stop, when Donald Trump challenged the election results in Georgia, wasn't he doing the same thing Stacey Abrams did in 2018? And the difference is in 2018, Stacey Abrams didn't challenge, you know, she had legal challenges about procedure, but when it became clear that the votes were not in her favor, she said, I agree, Brian Kemp won. But she moved on by still pursuing legal challenges to change the law for the future. And those legal challenges had traction. Donald Trump, every single legal challenge was thrown out. Mm -hmm. Stacey Abrams, her legal challenges were, were going somewhere. And that's why Republicans decided to work with her because we know that sometimes you settle so you don't avoid a long drawn out lawsuit that will cost you more money and perhaps be worse off for you in the long run. That's the difference. There was no settling with Donald Trump because his lawsuits, all of them were deemed without merit. Um, So she's been putting in the work and it, it paid off in Georgia, not just with Joe Biden winning, but then in the runoffs, both Democrats won, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. And that had big impact because now Democrats control both the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate and the White House. Yeah. So she was uh, successful in challenging some of the voter suppression, what she considered to be voter suppression laws. Right. Kept them tied up um, legally. Like you mentioned, they had traction. A lot of that information came also from, from what I understand, was from information received from the uh, election in um, Alabama, the Doug Jones election in, in 2018, where, you know, he won that race based upon the uh, ground game that African-Americans played uh, in Alabama. 
And uh, it was a, it was almost like this phenomenon where all of these, you know, black women sort of tipped the scales of election because they were better on the ground than people really anticipated in you know, going into various communities and actually asking people, registering people to vote and getting them out to vote. A lot of that was sort of same strategy as well, correct? Yeah, and so another parallel is, you know, Doug Jones was up against a very flawed Republican candidate. And so that depressed Republican turnout. And so Democrats realized that it was a turnout strategy. If you can get enough Democrats to turn out and overcome lackluster enthusiasm on the Republican side, your candidate can win. And that's something we saw, particularly in the runoffs in Georgia, where Warnock and Ossoff were running against two incumbent U.S. senators, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. But those Republican senators campaigned lockstep with Donald Trump. And because Donald Trump was so vocal about undermining the election process, saying the election had been stolen from him, accusing Republican leaders in Georgia of not doing enough to protect um, the integrity of the election, it depressed Republican turnout. So then Democrats saw that if they were able to engage enough Democratic voters so that their numbers overpowered Republicans, then they could win. And so that's really the key, particularly in the runoffs. Democrats, um, Stacey Abrams, as well as other groups, you know, there's the New Georgia Project, which was founded by Abrams, but which she has handed off to others. Um, Black Voters Matter, um, the NAACP, even the Democratic Party itself, really focused on ground game in the runoffs, um, turnout, but also engaging new voters. They signed up thousands of voters who either turned 18 between the general election and the runoffs or did not vote in the general election. And they said, now you didn't vote in November, but we need you to get engaged and vote in January. And again, the margins weren't huge. Ossoff and Warnock won, but um, just barely. But that's all you need. And so those few thousand voters that Democrats were able to engage, younger voters, those more infrequent voters, um, counted. But another point you made, and I want to make sure we emphasize this, is the Democratic Party, the backbone of the Democratic Party, is Black women. And that's something that the Democratic Party, I think, is aware of. But the Democratic Party, particularly under Joe Biden, has to um, continue to make sure that they show Black women that there is reward, there is payoff for this loyalty. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and that's part of the reason why Kamala Harris is vice president. And you've got Marsha Fudge as um, secretary of housing. And you've got him trying to elevate Black women in his administration, but there are still folks saying it needs to be more because without the support of Black women, and yes, Black men overwhelmingly vote Democratic, they do, but they are not as reliable and their turnout is still not as large as Black women. When you look at demographics, there are still a larger percentage of Black men who are willing to vote for Republicans, including Donald Trump compared to Black women. Yeah, surprisingly, still the number of African-American men who supported Donald Trump is is proportionally higher than that of black women, which is almost nil. Um, talk a little bit about the 
um, one of the one of the main strategies is really is early voting. Early voting was one of the because what we've what we've seen what we saw in the in the in the general election as well as the runoff was in Georgia. The early voting numbers were very high for Democrats, and those votes were counted in some areas. In some areas, they weren't counted, like in Fulton County and uh, DeKalb County, until after uh, you know the uh, the election, well, after the, the, the uh, everyone the vote, the deadline was over to stop voting. So, which meant that those ballots were sitting somewhere and they had to be counted, which gave uh, Republicans a false sense of security that they actually had they were going to win these races because they had a decent turnout on election day. Um, talk about that early voting strategy and why it seems to be not once but twice now the hammer that sort of nailed the coffin for Republican candidates in these major elections. Yeah, and this is another byproduct of the Donald Trump administration. So for years, part of the Republican playbook was taking advantage of not just early voting, but absentee voting, voting by mail. And you all, um, Florida Republicans have taken advantage of this to great success as well. Elderly voters usually like voting by mail. If you live in a more rural area where your precinct isn't just around the corner because precincts are more spread out, voting by mail is also a convenience. And Democrats just in the last two campaign cycles are starting to say, hey, we need to catch up with Republicans. They are whooping us because they are getting great turnout with voting by mail and um and then by the time election day comes around, we can't catch them. And so, especially during the pandemic, voting by mail became essential because people were scared to stand in line, worried about catching the coronavirus. And so what happened in Georgia was Republicans started to be get, become critical of voting by mail in particular, and to falsely assert that it was rife with fraud, that if you vote by mail, your vote might not be counted. They started to um, stress in-person voting and not just in-person early voting, but they started to stress in-person voting um, on on election day. But like you said, in, in Georgia, the law requires that absentee ballots cannot be tallied, they cannot be counted um, until after all polls close, which I think is different in Florida. In Florida, you can count them, you just can't report the total. So in Florida, as soon as polls close, they report the total because they've already counted them. Mm -hmm. In Georgia, they can't even count them. Now, they did change the law because of the pandemic made absentee ballot, absentee voting so popular they said you can process the ballots, make sure the signatures match, put them in nice little stacks so that when polls close, all you have to do is scan them, count them. Mm-hmm. But that still takes a lot of time. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper in some counties like Fulton County, um, maybe tens of thousands. Um, uh, so it took time. And so we warned Republicans and voters who may be supportive of Donald Trump that, listen, it's going to take time. And and again, because we knew that Democrats were taking advantage of mail-in balloting 
at a higher percentage than Republicans, those the more absentee ballots were counted, Democratic totals were likely to rise. Yeah. And so that is that false sense of security. But that also was why, unfortunately, Republicans used that to, you know, falsely state that there was prob- there was perhaps some problem, some fraud that allowed Democrats to take take the lead. And it wasn't fraud at all. It was just these votes took time to be counted. Yeah, it's fairly predictable. I mean, if you are in a predominantly Democratic um, county and your margins are thin, you may be winning or you're close and you know, a certain number of ballots have, haven't been counted yet. You don't have to be a Bart Simpson to know that you're going to, you know, it's not going to stay that way. That margin is going to disappear um, once the ballots have been counted. So, you know, it, the logic there, and I, I understand rhetoric and I understand, you know, how people like to message things based upon what they believe, but the, but the evidence says, and it happened twice. It didn't happen. It happened, it happened in November and then happened in January. The, the two, it happened the same way, you know, of, it, it just was a bigger uh, situation in the general election because you were counting presidential ballots, you know, president, president was on the ballot as well. But when you got down to the actual counting of the ballots, you knew that in Fulton and DeKalb counties that those margins were going to be erased almost immediately once the ballots were counted. So there shouldn't be any surprise there for people to wake up the next morning and and understand that whatever lead they had dissipated if they had one at all. So, yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit now about um, changing demographics. Do you think that Georgia, I mean, because now uh, twice in two months, the state is sort of gone blue, right? With the general election and then the runoff. Um, do you think that there is a long-term future there for the Democratic Party, are demographics actually changing in a, in a in a way, in a dynamic that will allow for a continued growth for the party there, or is this just a, a phenomenon that we saw because of, because of Trumpism? So Trumpism definitely um, fed into Joe Biden's win, John Ossoff's win, Raphael Warnock's win, and so it shows that the candidates on the ballot do matter. Um, That being said, the demographics of Georgia are only making it more likely that Democrats will continue to win. Georgia uh, population is becoming younger, more people of color and more immigrants are moving to Georgia and more and more those population centers, particularly Atlanta. So Georgia is different than Florida because there's really just one major city in Georgia, one major metropolitan area, which is Atlanta. And so Atlanta has been blue for quite some time, and but the suburbs, it used to be Fulton County and DeKalb County, which Atlanta spreads between both those counties. Um, those were the two blue counties, but now Cobb is blue. Now Gwinnett is blue. You have Clayton County, which is um, mostly an African-American county, is blue. And as that blue expands further into the Atlanta suburbs, it's becoming harder and harder for Republicans to make up the difference in rural Georgia, which is very red, but that population, there are just not enough people in rural Georgia to make up for that. That being said, 
candidates will still matter. So in two years, everyone thinks Stacey Abrams is going to run for governor again. But we don't. If she does, she's likely to win the primary. But Governor Kemp, it might not be a rematch. Donald Trump um, has so maligned Governor Kemp and has pretty much promised to back a different candidate in the Republican primary. So that matchup will be important because, you know, that was one of the things that we saw with the presidential election. Democrats, particularly Black Democrats, were very pragmatic in saying that they felt Joe Biden was the best possible candidate who could beat Donald Trump. And and making sure Donald Trump did not have another term in office was the number one concern of many Democratic voters. So that's why they turned their back on a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren who may have had more populist, more progressive platforms, but um, would have had a harder time perhaps attracting moderate voters and those persuadable conservative voters who no longer were supportive of President Trump, but also might not have been supportive of someone with super progressive um, policies. So candidates will still matter moving forward. You know, Ossoff and Warnock were also very attractive candidates compared to, again, Leffler and Purdue, who were so closely tied to Donald Trump. And um, particularly with Leffler and Warnock, you had, you know, Leffler painting herself as this very, very conservative Trump Republican but also her and Purdue were maligned for their stock trading during the coronavirus pandemic and that that worked against them and um, their personal wealth worked against them. Whereas Warnock was a black man and we know that black folks love to support black candidates. And so that helped with black turnout. He's a pastor who um, is on a pulpit that used to be that Martin Luther King used to preach from. You know, that's a very powerful narrative. Um, Ossoff, the first Jewish senator from Georgia, um, he also had name recognition. So candidates matter. And that, so Democrats are not guaranteed. They have a playbook now. They have a ground game now. They have momentum now. But I think, and, and the demographics are definitely working in, 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 in Democrats' favor, but that still doesn't mean Republicans cannot win. Yeah. So that do you think that uh, with that being said, do you think that uh, Republicans are sort of part of their strategy is to is to pass uh, new types of voter suppression laws that make it tougher for people to vote or, uh, uh, you know, signature challenges? I think I, I've heard rumblings of um, signature match. Um, um, verification for um, mail-in ballots and things like that. So you you see some of those things on the horizon? Yeah, so Republicans in Georgia, even those who were criticized by Donald Trump as not doing enough to reverse Joe Biden's win, some of those same Republicans are now backing new proposals that will tighten absentee ballot rules in Georgia. Now, the Republicans say it is to make sure there's no fraud, to make sure that the people who are submitting absentee ballots are who they say they are. Democrats argue that there's no sign of fraud, so these changes are only to make it harder to vote by mail and therefore an effort to depress turnout by folks who 
you know, you know, the easier it is, the better it is for Democrats. And you'll you'll hear Republicans say that when they tighten voting laws that benefits Republicans, when they make it easier to vote, that benefits Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, just the act of voting rights, voting laws is very partisan. So the the policies really on the table in Georgia and what is likely to pass, because again, in Georgia, we've got senators that are Democrats, but in the legislature, it is not just led by Republicans, it is overwhelmingly so Republican. Mm -hmm. And so they can do what they want pretty much and Democrats really can't stop them. And so what I think will pass is new laws that require some type of voter identification in absentee ballots. Now, that is controversial because driver's licenses, you know, we've been told for years, guard your driver license. Don't give out your driver license numbers because it can lead to identity um, fraud. Um, But it's looking like voters may be required to either um, put a copy of their license in the mail when they vote or submit additional information beyond just a signature match. Um, That's what it looks like is going to happen. Some people want to roll back what we call, you know, excuse-free absentee balloting. Anybody who wants to vote by mail can. In in Georgia, the same thing in Florida. There's talk in Georgia of rolling that back to the old days where you had to either be of a certain age, seniors, or you had to have excuse to why you wanted to vote by mail. You live overseas. You're on assignment for work out of state. You're in the military and not just anyone. Um, That's going to be more controversial. And again, that's going to be harder for Republicans to do politically because Republicans are the one who changed the law in the first place to no excuse absentee balloting. Mm -hmm. But now that it doesn't benefit them, they're talking about reversing that change. Yeah, I think it doesn't. I think the reason one of the reasons why it didn't benefit them is because um, the solution caught up to the uh, the intent. So when you have people who are, you know, sort of outrunning the fox, it, it almost doesn't matter anymore what types of voter suppression laws they enact. Um, there are people out there who sort of kind of got this thing figured out now and, and, and can put a game plan together to, you know, to work around that or work through it much right. like and, they did this time, um, you know, in the last two elections. Yeah. And that's why people like Stacey Abrams are dangerous to Republicans because she's very astute at working not only working to change the system, but working within the system as it is at any given time. Mm-hmm. So Democrats built a playbook that took it, that eventually realized we need to take advantage of mail-in voting um, and help because it helps with turnout, particularly during a pandemic um, and pushing for those types of changes. And I think that should the law change, I'm sure folks like Stacey Abrams will be working to figure out, okay, now that we've got a new set of parameters to work in, how are we going to do that? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what comes up uh, in in the months when, uh, as the Georgia legislators are, legislators are doing their job or trying to figure out how to undo some of the progresses of um, those people who all turned out to vote legally, turned out to vote. So let's talk now a little bit about 
January 6th. Uh, we all know that there was a insurrection, uh, riot, terror, domestic terrorism uh, attack on the Capitol. And I know you were there. So yes. wh- where were you? And uh, what was your what were your experiences during that time? And what was going through your mind um, while all of this was going on? Yeah, so that's, I was there. Um, I was in the House chamber when the insurrection started because, you know, Congress was in a joint session to tally the electoral college votes. It's usually really routine. But again, because Donald Trump and his supporter had falsely accused certain states, certain swing states of allowing for fraud and illegal votes that gave Joe Biden the win. None of that has been proven. All of that actually has been disproven, but they were claiming it anyways. So Georgia was among six swing states that had been targeted to challenge their electoral college votes during this this joint session. So of course I was in the house chamber. At the time they had just got started and they were, the procedure, they came into joint session and each state was really fast, you know, Alaska, 12 votes for Donald Trump approved. But then they got to Arizona, which was the first, they were going in alphabetical order. The first of the six states was Arizona. And so because Arizona was challenged, all you need is one, you need one member of the House and one member of the Senate to say, I want a challenge. And that's enough to um, trigger a two hour period of debate. And so they were debating Arizona. stayed in the House chamber because, um, you know, Georgia has 14 House members. At the time, Georgia had one U.S. senator, but because um, of the runoff, David Perdue, his term was up. And even if he had won the runoff, he wouldn't have been certified by then. The runoff was the day before. Kelly Leffler had lost the runoff, but again, because it had not been certified and Raphael Warnock had not yet been sworn in, she was still in office because hers was a special election. So I stayed in the house um, because there was more action and we were just listening to Arizona and it was really surreal. You know, the first thing we were told is um, get get everything that you need because we're going to lock the doors. We're not going to let anyone in or out of the chamber. You know, the media we are in the chamber with the House members. There were 100 to 200 members of the House there. And our seats are kind of up on a second level where visitors normally sit and then there's a media area. But because there were so many members on the floor and because of social distancing, there were some members of Congress sitting up on that second visitor level as well. And so, you know, they said, we're locking the doors because there was already like, Um, some evacuations in nearby buildings. And um, we were told that people were going to try to get into the Capitol. Now, I didn't have a frame of reference for this. Mm -hmm. The last time I had looked outside was around 1230. And there was a group of a few hundred people protesting, but they were behind barriers about a, a hundred yards away from the Capitol. And so all I knew was there were a few hundred people outside. Which is sort of so, normal for DC. Yeah, it was like a normal, yeah. yeah, there was, people you know. People protesting all the time. People protest all the time. It's usually, you know, they're kept away. It's chill. I mean, you know, it's a lot of protesting verbally. Yeah. It's not physical. Yeah. 
and um, it's not threatening. And so when they said people might try to get in, I'm thinking one or two crazy people, you know, trying to get in. And so they say we're locking the doors. And then a few minutes later, they whisk some of the House leadership off the floor. I saw them in particular, what I could see was Steny Hoyer, who's the House Democratic leader. And he's in the order of succession, you know, when it comes to the president or whatever, they whisk him off the floor. And, but the House is still in debate, acting like everything's normal. Mm -hmm. And then a few minutes after that, they, you know, the House members are starting to get antsy and agitated. And they finally, you know, it's just, no one can focus on the debate and they're trying to get everyone to calm down and remain calm and remain in your seats. And then they say, get your gas mask. There are gas masks under your seat where there are people in the rotunda and we've used tear gas on them. And just in case tear gas starts seeping into the chamber, you need to put on a gas mask and they start handing us gas masks. Um, And so again, it's scary yeah. But we don't have a frame of reference for what that means. Yeah. And so. Could you hear anything? You couldn't hear anything. We could at all? hear. So eventually we can hear people banging on the doors. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't know if it's one person going around from door to door trying to get in. Because remember, the doors are locked yeah. and the doors are opaque. You can't see through them. Yeah. The only door that you can kind of see through is on the first level. And um And even that's opaque, actually, when the doors are closed. So they end up evacuating. And remember, there are 100 to 200 members of Congress. All those on the main floor are evacuated out Mm -hmm. because they're on that main floor. We're up a level. And they start trying to evacuate us, too. But at one point, they go, the rioters are getting too close. we got to lock the doors again. If you're here, you're here. Just take oh. cover, do the best you can. Oh my! And there were about 50 people still in the House chamber at the time, about two dozen members of Congress, about two dozen members of the media, and a handful of Capitol Police officers. And that's when it got scary. That's mm-hmm. when on my social media, I said, you know, if anybody's worried about me, I'm locked in the House chamber, but I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Um We heard the gunshot when they um, shot and killed the lady. She was a floor below us, but we could hear the gunshot. And then we saw them. There's a picture. One of the more iconic pictures is of you can see Capitol Police officers have barricaded a door with furniture. Yeah. And they've got their guns drawn and the rioters are breaking windows trying to get in. Mm -hmm. I saw that with my own eyes. We Mm -hmm. saw that unfold. We were in the chamber. And there are members of Congress. People are praying. People are calling. I called my mom. People are calling loved ones and just having that call because we didn't know how it was going to turn out. Um, That's the difference. There were pictures of the rioters that made it into the Senate chamber. But by the time they made it into the Senate chamber, the chamber was empty. There were no members. Mm -hmm. The rioters, when they were trying to breach the House chamber, there were members and media in the chamber. And so... Um, after a few minutes, they did evacuate us out. We had to walk feet away from rioters. Those rioters had been subdued. They were um, face down on the floor. There were Capitol Police officers with guns drawn saying, don't you dare move. But there was probably, we could see five or six of them. Mm-hmm. And we had to walk kind of past them. Well, walk a few feet away from them to evacuate. 
And by and once we evacuated and could gather around TVs and see CNN, that was my first time seeing that there were literally hundreds, if not thousands, of people surrounding the Capitol. So what did I had you feel, no what did, idea. What did you feel like when you saw the the you know the the, the enormous uh, amount of people? On, you know, you saw this on CNN and you kind of got a, a breath for what was really going on. And before this part, you were just kind of following orders, right? Following right. I was very much in journalist mode that mm-hmm. day. Okay. Even after everything happened, I was chronicling it on social media. I was taking pictures. I did a Facebook Live to explain to people what happened and Periscope Live. And That's very brave even yeah, I mean, and that was just what my mindset was. You know, I, I used to joke, I joked to a lot of people. I said, I spent three and a half years covering the crime beat in Jacksonville, Florida <laughs> at night. So, you this know, just a practice. It was a little scary situation. And again, I've never been so personally at risk. And I acknowledge that. But scary situations, I've been in them before. Mm-hmm. Y'all know what Duval's like. So, mm-hmm. you know, I covered crime for three and a half years in Duval County from 2 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. So um, so that was just kind of the mode I was in. I would say it really didn't sink in until Friday mm-hmm. when I calmed down and more pictures started to come out of what the Capitol looked like. Because remember, it took time. Even that day, there were pictures of outside the Capitol, mm-hmm. but it took time for people to have the footage and the pictures of the insurrection inside the Capitol, the vandalism, the sheer number of people who had flooded the Capitol, the sheer number of people and what they were saying and the fact that they went to Nancy Pelosi's office and ransacked it and were looking for her and, and that they were saying where are the lawmakers we want them and threatening violence toward Vice President Pence, who is also at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And so that's the part that has been the hardest to digest because five people died as a direct result of that riot. Two additional police officers died by suicide after the riots. And it could have been worse. Yeah, definitely. The bloodshed could have been worse if they again, they were trying to breach the House chamber with members of Congress still in the House chamber. And we know now if that breach had occurred, the members of Congress and the Capitol Police officers and the media, including Mm -hmm. me, would have been vastly outnumbered. And that's scary because we don't know what would have happened. We saw people with zip ties. We saw people who had. You know, it seemed like they were prepared to take hostages. And thank God we don't know if that would have been the case, but we came very, very close. So I know that you you also stuck around for the the, the final um, passage of the um, counting of the electoral votes. And I think that ended somewhere around three or four in the morning. And yeah, and I didn't stay till the very end, but I stayed until it was clear that it was coming to an end. Okay. So, so yeah, we stayed for what, you know, we went back to work. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about the the attitude of the returning Congress members. Um, because I understand that tensions were high. Um, some people were very chippy with each other, right? Um, and I know that they get into these, you know, deep um, ideological 
ideological debates around policy all the time, but this was different. Um, there were some personal feelings in there uh, as they tried to close this out. Um, I noticed that we also noticed that Kelly Loeffler, you know, she backed down from her challenge, probably with respect to what, what had happened earlier. Um, but there was some chippiness in there. Um, you know, kind of, can you describe any of that that was going on? Yes, tensions are high and they remain high mm -hmm. because there are Democratic members in particular who believe and we names have not been named. Evidence has not been brought forward. So I want to use that grain of salt. But there are Democrats who have alluded to believing that there are some Republican members who had a more direct hand in the violence. Now we already know there are Republican members who had indirect association. For example, there are Republican members who met with the president and his advisors about strategy for challenging electoral college votes. There was at least one Republican member who spoke at that rally that started at the Capitol where the people left, I'm sorry, started at the White House at the rally. That's the rally that President Trump spoke at. And then that rally is what led the people to walk to the Capitol and ultimately breach it. And so, but there are some members, some Democratic members who believe perhaps, you know, that there are Republican members who allow for tours. The Capitol has been closed to visitors because of the pandemic, but there have been allegations that some Republican members um, gave tours that might've helped people learn the lay of the Capitol before the day before. Um, again, their evidence and names have not been named, but that's what's going around. And so you have Democratic members saying they do not, they literally do not feel safe around some of their Republican colleagues that that day, even before, because that came out, you know, in the, the days after. But that day, what Democrats were saying was Republicans had not done enough to challenge the misinformation, mm -hmm. that Republicans had not done enough to stand up to President Trump and say, cut down on the rhetoric, people are gonna get hurt. And that in real time, Donald Trump did not do enough. You know, he came out and spoke not until hours later, but that in real time, Donald Trump did not do enough to call off the riot and that Republicans for all their loyalty and associations with Donald Trump, you know, Democrats were saying, call your people and tell them to stand down. And so um, tensions were very high. You know, on the other side, Republicans were saying, you know, Democrats earlier in the year had maligned police and now they want police to come to their rescue when the rubber meets the road. So that was the tension on the Republican side, um, which, you know, is not as stooped in reality, quite honestly, because mm -hmm. Democrats in Congress, by and large, you know, Democrats. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have some progressives, but they are in the minority as far as the Democratic caucus when it comes to defunding the police. Um, and there are no uh, official proposals that have moved forward in the Democratic run house as far as defunding the police. Mm -hmm. But that is still a talking point from Republicans. Yeah. So fast forward two weeks later, uh, we got um, a successful transition, um, albeit um, you know, highly, you know, folks were nervous about it, right? Because yeah. with all of the troops and everything occupying DC, that's 
feels different yeah, to say that. Democrat yeah. DC was locked down. In in some ways, the Capitol is still very locked down. They're talking about making the fencing permanent. Mm, wow. Wow. Well, the transition happened. We have a new president and um, he preached uh, unity in his inauguration speech. That was something he talked about during the transition and it's something he continues to talk about, at least uh, his spokespersons do. Uh, they make sure they get that message out uh, whenever they talk about policy, even through uh, all of the executive orders that he's been signing um, and whatever potential work or policymaking he's doing with Congress. However, um, we are already seeing pushback, right, from the Republican side about this whole unity thing. What What are your thoughts um, going forward? I mean, how how do you think that once the dust settles, you know, six months down the road, we, we, we really start kind of getting into uh, the Biden administration, you know, will there be, you know, some type of peace? You know, will we have any reconciliation opportunities to work together? Um, you know, really sort of rejecting the whole uh, Trumpism, um, partisan politics piece. It, you know, do you see any of that on the horizons or you think it's going to be business as usual, you know, by the time we get to the summer? Yeah, I think business as usual. And let me tell you why. Two things. This week, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, he's the Republican leader in the U.S. House. So he's the most powerful Republican in the House. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately after the riots, he said that President Trump was partially responsible for what happened. On Friday, he met with President Trump in Florida and um, came up and, and has since tempered his criticism of President Trump. Um, they walked away from the meeting, putting out press releases saying that they were President Trump was going to work together um, to help elect more Republicans in 2022 and 2024. So it became clear that um, President Trump remains, if not the leader, a leading figure in the Republican Party. And the other thing that I want to point out is, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a Congresswoman from Georgia, she said a lot of problematic things and a lot of new problematic things have surfaced just in the last week. Um, And so there are calls for her to be censured, expelled, stripped from committees. And all Kevin McCarthy said about her was that he was troubled and would like to talk to her about it. Mm -hmm. So you have him making nice with President Trump and um, refusing to condemn or criticize Representative Green. And so I think it's indicative of where the Republican Party is right now. Representative Green is a Trump loyalist. She is part of that MAGA branch of the Republican Party, which is becoming the Republican Party. And I think that's in direct conflict with with Democrats. It's just so polarizing. That being said, Biden can get his agenda done more easily now because Republicans can't be as much of a roadblock as they used to be because they no longer control the Senate. Um, that doesn't mean he can get everything he needs. The the this Democratic majority in both chambers is thin. Mm-hmm. But I think, again, Democrats have learned from Republicans that I think Democrats are less willing to try to play nice. As much as Joe Biden is talking about unity, I think his agenda is more important to him. So for example, next week on coronavirus relief, if Republican unity cannot be reached in the Senate to avoid a filibuster, 
they're going to do it through a, a lesser used budget reconciliation process that doesn't require that 60 vote um, procedure to avoid a filibuster. They're going to do it without Republicans, in other words. Yeah. And I think you'll see Democrats doing that. You know, back in the day, Democrats would say, no, we want to make nice because in the long run, it might bite us if we do it without Republicans. But guess what? Republicans don't act like that. No, Republicans, they do, they do you do. know, confirmed all these judges. They blew up the filibuster so they could confirm as many judges as possible under the Trump administration. And they didn't necessarily say, well, no, let's not do this because we don't want it to bite us in the future. They said, no, this is what we think needs to be done right now. This is what's going to further our agenda in the short term. Let's do it and deal with the consequences later. And so I think you're going to see Democrats doing that more and more because their majorities are not guaranteed in 2020. Usually in midterms, the party of the president loses seats. Mm -hmm. Um, Democrats lost seats this year, even though they were successful in a lot of ways. In the House, Democrats lost seats. So there's no guarantee that Democrats will be in the majority in the U.S. House beyond after 2022. So they really only have two years to get it done. Yeah. Try the unity. And if it doesn't work, you know, you know, kill a mosquito with an axe, I guess, you know. Yeah, so, so this budget, this coronavirus relief discussion in the upcoming week will tell us a lot. Yeah, and it's important, too. This is a big piece of legislation that uh, is meant to, to sort of cure some of the short-term ills uh, being brought on by the, the the lack of legislation that was done during the waning uh, days of the Trump administration. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I, I think... Um, I think what we'll see in the future is, is, you know, Joe Biden is really nice right now. And I think he's probably going to you're going to have to do some obama because Obama tried to be nice early and then they they taught him a quick lesson, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Teal Mitchell, thanks a lot for joining us today. Teal Mitchell from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She's the Washington correspondent, also former reporter for the Tallahassee Democrat, as well as the Florida Times Union uh, and one of my favorite you Rattlers. That's right. Thank you again <laughs> for having me back on your show. Thank you very much for being here. And that's our show. Thanks to my guest and friend, Tia Mitchell, for that informative discussion on all matters Washington, D.C. politics. Our Real Talk producer is Charles Landon Griggs. Say hello to him out on the West Coast. And I'm Charles Griggs, your host. And remember, there's always time for Real Talk. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Real Talk and subscribe to our show on iTunes or the usual podcast sites. You can write Real Talk at speaktous at 8wgroup.com and tell us who you'd like to hear on a future interview. Until next time, remember, on Real Talk, we are always open for discussion.